Hello, and welcome to episode one of Gut Instinct, research updates, bringing you the latest research in gastroenterology and hepatology. I'm Tamsin Cargill. I'm a gastro registrar and PhD student in Oxford, and I'm interested in hepatology, particularly viral hepatitis and vaccine development. And I'm Michael Fitzpatrick, known as Fitz to pretty much everyone, and as well as Tamsin's podcast sidekick, I'm a clinical lecturer in gastroenterology at Oxford, with a research interest in GI immunology, celiac disease and nutrition. Now we've started this podcast to bring you some of the most interesting GI related papers that have come out recently, hopefully saving you time and assuaging that terrible guilt of not reading enough journals. Now each episode we're going to talk you through two cracking primary research papers in some detail, one clinical and one translational, and we will give you our take on the research and, and what we think of it. Clearly, there are loads of great papers coming out every month. So in addition, we're going to give you a rapid fire rundown of what else there is out there in the gastro world in our five in five section, where we will try and give you the key points of five papers in five minutes. We're aiming to give you some context, a bit of critical appraisal of the papers that we talk about and try not to take ourselves too seriously in the process. We both love gastro um, and research. Fitz is more interested in IBD, small bowel disease and nutrition, while I'm more interested in liver disease. So we hope this podcast will have something for everyone. Now, uh, obligatory disclaimer alert. Clearly nothing in this podcast constitutes medical advice. If you're a patient, you should should consult your medical practitioner. For doctors, I'm sure you wouldn't base your medical management solely on what a couple of people told you on a podcast. Now, this is the first of our podcast, and if we're honest, we don't really know what we're doing. So please, we'd like to hear what you think about us. Write us a glowing review on whatever platform you're streaming this through. Connect to us via Twitter, at GI Update, and we're both on Twitter also. Or email us at gutinstinctpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So, Tamsin, shall we get started with the uh, the first paper? Let's go for it. Excellent. So, um, I've got the clinical paper uh, for this episode, and I think this is a really topical and important paper, but I am afraid that it involves the C word. And I know we had talked about not talking about COVID during this podcast, but I think I think we're gonna we're gonna have to mention it. I'm sorry. Okay, you're forgiven this time. Yeah, thank you for forgiving me. Um, so this paper is from Lancet's Gastroenterology and Hepatology from a couple of weeks ago, and it's entitled The Impact of the COVID-19 Pandemic on the Detection and Management of Colorectal Cancer in England, a Population-Based Study. Deep breath, long title. Um, so this is from a collaboration of several groups uh, within Oxford from the Department of Population Health and the Big Data Institute as well as a variety of researchers from around the UK. So clearly during the uh, COVID pandemic, health services have really had to adapt and change in order to deal with a sort of an influx of patients on the acute side and and particularly in critical care. And that's had a range of impacts on other services. And there's been real concern in the media, particularly about the impacts on cancer pathways and cancer care. And there's particular reasons we should be worried about colorectal cancer pathways. So first, bowel cancer is common, um, 
Colorectal cancer is the fourth most common cancer in the UK, with over 40,000 diagnoses each year. Second, while colorectal cancer has a really excellent prognosis if diagnosed early, so stage one disease has a five-year survival of over 90%, if diagnosed late, it's got a really poor prognosis with only a 10% five-year survival if diagnosed at stage four. So early diagnosis and early treatment really matters. And third, the diagnosis relies on colonoscopy, a procedure that was severely affected during the pandemic. So, so healthcare leaders, both uh, regionally and nationally, want to address the challenges that, that COVID have placed on, on cancer pathways, but they need data. And, and something that I hadn't appreciated was that the usual way that, the, that cancer data is collected for, for the official statistics takes a lot of time. So often it's 18 months to two years after, um, uh, after the year in question that the data comes out. And clearly we can't be discussing the impact of COVID um, in, in 2022 or 2023. So how did this group solve that problem? Yeah, so I, th I think this, co uh, this group um, have been quite inventive by using some administrative data sets which have more kind of real-time data or at least a, a much shorter lag in, in the data being released to compare referrals for cancer as well as investigations, diagnoses and treatments for colorectal cancer in 2020 with the previous year. So they've extracted information from four NHS England data sets. Um, so I will avoid using their long acronyms. Um, but they include data sets that look at cancer waiting times on the, the two-week wait referral pathways, uh, diagnostic tests like colonoscopy, uh, diagnoses of colorectal cancer, and then admitted patient care. So things like uh, operations as well as radiotherapy databases. So the results really tell us the tale of the initial pandemic impact and the peak but I think more importantly, what happened afterwards. So if you remember, lockdown hit in about the last week of March in 2020. And so what we see is that in April, the number of, of urgent cancer referrals from primary care, so the two week wait referrals for suspected colorectal cancer dropped by 63% in, in April, 2020. And those referrals remained low in May, they started to pick up in June, which was when lockdown started to be relaxed, but it took until September until levels returned to, to those seen in 2019. And the impact on colonoscopy was even more striking. So in 2019, colonoscopy numbers averaged around 46,000 procedures a month in England, and that went down to just 3,500 in April 2020, so a 92% drop. In, in colonoscopy procedures. And again, although numbers slowly rose over the following months, it took until October to get back to expected capacity. Most of the colonoscopies we do, even on the two-week wait pathway, they're negative for cancer. So did this temporary drop in referrals and procedures lead to a reduction in diagnoses? Yeah, so a great question, and, and yes. So they looked at the number of um, new colorectal cancer diagnoses per month in, in 2020. And in the period of April to October, where there was that big drop in referrals and colonoscopy, there were 22% fewer diagnoses of colorectal cancer than would be expected if we compare to last year's data. 
And that corresponds to about three and a half thousand fewer cases of colorectal cancer diagnosed than would be expected. Now, consequently, there were fewer operations for colorectal cancer during that period. And there were also some changes in uh, the, the types of surgery performed uh, and, other, uh, and other treatments given. So during that, that time, there were concerns about laparoscopic, uh, laparoscopic approaches. So there were more open operations that corresponded to a greater proportion of patients having a stoma formed at surgery. And um, there were also changes in radiotherapy treatments. So an increase in short course radiotherapy, particularly for rectal cancers. And is there any sign that we're sort of catching up and starting to diagnose any of the missing cases now? Yeah, so I, from a clinical perspective, I agree that's, that's definitely the biggest concern is where are those missing three and a half thousand diagnoses of cancer uh, in, in that period in 2020. And up until the end of their data collection period, which was, uh, I think, till the end of October 2020, there was no evidence of a compensatory increase in either referrals, scopes or diagnoses. So things had gone back to pre-pandemic levels, but they hadn't gone, gone higher to, to catch up that, that, those, those missing cases. So it raises the question of where are those patients that we would have expected to diagnose and which services would we have expected to pick up those cancers? Would they have been picked up on the two-week wait pathway, symptomatic referrals, or the bowel cancer screening program? And what are the consequences for those delayed diagnoses? So second, I think it really shows the enormous impact of the, um, the entirely necessary changes to the NHS uh, during COVID. So the fewer, fewer consultations, referrals, and scopes led to this reduction in diagnoses and it shows how difficult it was to uh, to get services back to normal once lockdown and so on was was um, was eased in in June. Now uh, for those for those who are listening from abroad uh, the UK had um, has had a, a very serious second wave of, of Covid cases um, in the autumn and winter of this year and um, we've gone into a, a second lockdown um, from, from the end of December onwards. Um, but endoscopy services nationally have been much more protected than in the first wave. And it will be really important to see if um, we're maintaining enough capacity in the system in terms of procedures and, the, and most importantly, diagnoses um, uh, during, during the second wave. Uh, and the researchers are, are laudably continuing to produce these data analyses each month on their website and the data for November shows that procedures are remaining at, at 2090 levels, but will be interesting to see what happens in the December and January figures, because that's when things have, 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 uh, have really hit the hospitals. So I will have to wait a couple of months to see the full impact on that. I think finally, this, this paper shows just how powerful real world big data analysis is to kind of guide healthcare policy and resource use. And I think the researchers have really done a a cracking job in that. I think the main deficits of this paper can't really be blamed at the, the researchers themselves, but the limitations of the data sets that they're, they're looking at. So for, for me, there's two questions that remain unanswered. The first is how do those changes in kind of diagnoses or potential delays to diagnoses correspond to uh, the stage of disease diagnosis? or to surrogate endpoints of curative surgery, so resection margins or lymph node involvement, and so on. So we can kind of see what the impact is gonna be on, on, on patient prognosis. 
And the second is that these data sets can't be linked to individual level factors like age or ethnicity or socioeconomic state status. And that means that those researchers can't look at things like potential health inequalities, which I think is really important as we know that this pandemic has had a disproportionate effect uh, on certain groups in society. Thanks, Fitz. That was a really, really interesting and topical paper. We're going to re-summarise the key points at the end of the podcast. So Tamsin, what, what have you got for me from the, uh, the translational side of things? So this week, I've got a hepatology-flavoured translational paper looking at the immune system in acute on chronic liver failure. It was published last month in January 2021 in GUT. Um, by COSH, which stands for the Chinese Group on the Study of Severe Hepatitis B. Fantastic. Tamsin, you're going to have to remind me, I've been thinking about T-cells, I think, for far too long. Um, Can you remind me what acute on chronic liver failure is and how it's defined and why it's important? Yes, um, all very good questions. So ACLF stands for acute on chronic liver failure. And it basically describes a syndrome in which a patient with an acute decompensation of chronic liver disease develops organ failure associated with a very high short-term mortality rate. And diagnostic criteria and score calculators to predict mortality have been developed and links to these will be put on the show notes. So obviously understanding the pathogenesis of ACLF is really important so that we can identify novel targets for therapy in these patients um, that might modify the disease process and improve the mortality. At the moment, we know that um, ACLF is initiated by hepatocyte damage and that its development is associated with systemic inflammation. So within the scoring system to diagnose ACLF, for example, the white cell count being high scores points. And some other research has shown that in patients with ACLF, as opposed to decompensated chronic liver disease alone, they have raised pro-inflammatory cytokines. And there's also been some analysis at the transcriptomic level, so with transcription of proteins in immune cells in the blood from people who have acute on chronic liver failure, and that's been compared to healthy people. And there's some differences have been found. But what we don't understand is what some of those differences might be in the immune cells between persons with compensated cirrhosis, decompensated cirrhosis, and ACLF, and what makes ACLF different um, and causes that really high mortality. So the aim of this study was to describe the transcriptomic profile of what the paper calls PBMCs, and these are peripheral blood mononuclear cells, so the immune cells in the blood across different stages of liver disease, right from healthy people through to ACLF, in order to try and identify the molecular pathways that might then serve as novel therapeutic targets. So how did they do this? They already had a um, a large cohort study underway, which is the COSH study, and this study is the Chinese group on the study of severe hepatitis B. So all patients in this study have hep B. It's got over a 1,000 people in it overall. They selected 340 patients from that and also recruited an additional 60 people who were healthy, making a total cohort of 400. And then they evaluated cross-sectionally individuals at different stages of hepatitis B 
So from healthy controls without infection to people with chronic hepatitis B infection but no cirrhosis, those with cirrhosis but compensated stable cirrhosis, decompensated cirrhosis and ACLF. So these 400 participants were then randomised into a sequencing group, so 65 of them in that group versus a validation group. And in the sequencing group, they took immune cells from these 65 individuals and they underwent a process called RNA-seq or RNA sequencing to identify what these immune cells were transcribing. And then they validated some of the things they found using PCR in the validation cohort. Okay, so they've got their cohort of patients and then they're looking for differences in the gene expression between, uh, between the different groups. So individuals either healthy, with chronic liver disease, but not with ACLF, and then those with ACLF. That's correct, yeah. Cool, okay. So for those uh, who, who might be less familiar with molecular biology, what is RNA-seq and how does that compare to other techniques like qPCR that you've mentioned as well? So RNA-seq is basically a technique that identifies genes that are being transcribed at a particular time by either a particular group of cells or within individual cells. And um, for the purposes of this study, the authors collected the immune cells in the blood from the participants and they extracted the mRNA being made by each of the cells from each donor and pooled that together. So it was pooled RNA from all the cells from one donor and then pooled RNA from all the cells of donor two and so on. Because the signal of the mRNA from those cells is quite weak to start with, in order to be able to find out what it is and read it as such, that signal needs to be amplified. So that step sort of uses polymerase chain reaction and amplifies all the mRNA that's been extracted from those cells. And then the results of that are sequenced, usually using a kind of technique where nucleotides are attached to fluorescent markers And then the sequence of the fluorescent markers um, can be read and decoded into the nucleotide sequence. So, for example, it might be, I don't know, blue, red, green, yellow, and that might mean A, T, C, G. And that can be then mapped back onto the genome to understand which proteins are being transcribed from that set of cells. And then once you've got that, the expression of levels of the different mRNA molecules can be assessed and compared between different groups of cells from different donors. So it allows you to compare the, the gene expression of all of the uh, of all of the genes in a kind of an unbiased way. Exactly. So you don't go in with a hypothesis and say, right, I want to try and detect this particular mRNA and 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 just amplify that particular one that you're interested in by PCR. You actually amplify and detect everything that that cell is making and that means that it's a sort of unbiased way of um, finding out what's going on at the molecular level within cells. Okay great thanks so what what did they find that was different between these different groups? Uh, They found firstly that in ACLF there is a particular transcriptional signature of immune cells and they they look different to cells from people that have other liver disease phenotypes. And a particular thing that they noticed that they found interesting was that there was um, an increase in differentially expressed genes that were associated with metabolism. 
and that progressively increased in a, in a spectrum from healthy to ACLF. So in ACLF, there were more genes that were differentially expressed to do with metabolism. And what else did they find? How else are they different? Well, there were also differential expression of genes that were associated with viral activation. So an example might be genes that regulate viral replication, immune processes, such as um, innate immune activating cell surface receptors, inflammatory processes, in particular pro-inflammatory cytokines, and as I've mentioned, metabolism. Genes associated with dysregulation of glycogen metabolism, cholesterol efflux, and HDL metabolism were all found to be differentially expressed in immune cells from individuals with ACLF as opposed to other liver disease phenotypes. So these sort of broad classifications that they had discovered, they then went on to pick out the genes that were differentially expressed the most and that they thought would therefore be the most important potentially in the pathogenesis. So the four that they looked at in more detail And again, I had to look up what some of the functions of these genes were. Um, So something called thrombospondin 1, which is a protein that is involved in cell-cell-cell matrix interactions. So binds to collagen, fibrinogen, laminin, that kind of thing. Myrtyrazine kinase, which is involved in extracellular matrix cytoplasm signaling and also phagocytosis of apoptotic cells. Semaphorin B, Um, And these are proteins that are involved in immune regulation. And PPAR gamma, um, this was the only one I'd actually heard of. So um, in relation to um, insulin metabolism, but but it also has roles in uh, lipid metabolism as well. So they took these four genes that they had found to be um, expressed more highly in immune cells from individuals with ACLF. And they specifically looked for them in the immune cells from the validation cohort. So the 335 patients that they hadn't sequenced, they took their immune cells, probed them for these particular proteins and amplified them um, by PCR to see if they were there at the transcriptomic level again, so detecting the mRNA. And they found that by PCR, um, in the validation cohort, these four genes were also outpopulated. They also looked to see whether they were expressed at the protein level. So to do this, they took liver biopsies from persons with ACLF, but also at the different stages of liver disease in the cohort and stained them with immunohistochemistry for these four proteins. And again, this confirmed the findings that they were upregulated in ACLF and therefore might have an important role in the pathogenesis. Wow. So, I mean, this, this paper has there's so much data in it. This, it's just an enormous amount of work, as, as is often the case in these, uh, these big kind of translational papers. It's, kind of, it's almost quite overwhelming. And um, particularly figure three and, and bit of figure four it makes me feel like Neo looking at the code in the matrix for the first time. Um, uh, for, for the person who isn't going to, to, to pour over figure three, what do you think are the, the key take-home findings? Uh, in particular, what, what might be the findings for kind of clinical practice down the line? Yeah, I, well, 
excellent points. <laughs> um, so I think, number one, the authors have identified that immune cells in ACLF express different proteins than in less severe liver disease. Two, a lot of these genes are associated with immunometabolism. Three, they've identified four of these proteins that could potentially be used as either biomarkers of ACLF or as targets for therapy. And they've sort of proposed um, a model of pathogenesis using their findings, where there is some kind of exacerbation of the hepatitis B virus itself, um, and that was detected through the genes that were upregulated to do with viral replication and processing, for example. And then there is an excessive innate immune response to the virus and inflammation, which leads to a metabolic disorder within the immune cells and then ultimately leads to multi-organ failure. Now, there's a lot of questions that remain from this paper. And I mean, I could just list a few of them. The technique they've used doesn't actually tell us which immune cell types are most dysregulated. So which ones are expressing those genes that they found to be upregulated? How does the dysregulated immune response result in this metabolic disorder? And how does that in turn lead to multi-organ failure and death? This paper doesn't explain that. And is this a common vinyl pathway in ACLF from other causes? Because, of course, um, all the individuals enrolled in this study had chronic hepatitis B virus. But as we know, especially in Europe and North America, a lot of patients will have alcoholic-related liver disease, for example. So on that, that point, Tamsin, do they speculate about whether it could be a common pathway uh, or whether they think this is actually H HBV-specific? Because some of the genes that were upregulated are to do with the virus itself, those ones in particular won't be relevant for liver disease of other etiology. But because this is the first piece of work that has really looked in this much detail, they don't really know whether this is going to be a common pathway in, um, in liver disease of other etiologies. I think that what these kind of papers can do is generate new hypotheses that need to be tested in other ways using other methods. So, for example, this paper can't tell us which cells are over or underproducing the proteins that they found that might be important and what they're actually doing, because often they have several functions, whether they're expressed on the surface of cells, so therefore are they accessible to drugs, and other studies need to be done um, to answer these questions. And the other thing that I think is important to mention that is probably quite obvious, especially to a clinical audience, is that these kind of investigations cannot prove causality. They can only find associations. And that's why we need to build on them um, in order to understand what they really do mean. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. I mean, I, I really like this paper. And I think the bit that I really like is the fact that they've got this huge cohort of patients you know they've really taken take yeah. a lot of time to get a really clinically relevant large cohort of patients because we know that in these sequencing studies 
um, you know, there's often a lot of variation between patients. Humans, unlike mice, are annoyingly heterogeneous. Um, and uh, so they've got such a big cohort and they've really tried to validate some of their, their biomarkers and things like that. And, and, you know, full credit to them for that. But as you say, um, in a way, it, it, it sort of poses more questions than it, than it gives answers. Um, but uh, yeah, it's great to see uh, it's great to see a study like this being done in actually a really, really sick and unwell group of patients. So now we're going to move on to the, the bit that um, uh, I think is probably the most ambitious of our podcast, which is to um, is the five in five section where we are going to try and summarize five other interesting recent publications in five minutes. Um, as with the main pa papers, we'll put the titles and the links to all the papers in the show notes. Um, and so here goes. Uh, if we if we keep get this in five minutes, I will be absolutely stunned. Uh, so I've got three for you, Tamsin. I think you've got you've got two as well. So the first I'm going to mention is this paper just out in gastroenterology by teams in Cambridge and Imperial. The first authors are Gasparetto and Payne. Um, and it's entitled Transcription and DNA Methylation Patterns of Blood-Derived CD8 T-cells are Associated with Age and Inflammatory Bowel Disease, but do not predict prognosis. Another very long title. Um, the background to this paper is really important. So back in 2011, um, Lee, McKinney and Lyons uh, had a paper in JCI which showed a transcriptional signature of circulating CD8 T-cells predicted prognosis in patients with IBD. And clearly this was huge because if we can have an accurate biomarker of severe inflammatory bowel disease, this would be enormously helpful in identifying patients for aggressive escalation of therapy. And uh, that work has led to um, further research. A spin-out company uh, has been formed and they are developing a commercial biomarker based on this gene signature. Unfortunately, this paper put someone, somewhat of a dampener on that work. So this group have looked at that, uh, have looked at the transcriptional signatures, so the gene expression signatures, and then the methylation profiles. So these are epigenetic changes on, on the DNA of cells which control what can and can't be expressed uh, uh, of, of CD8 cells um, in the blood of two cohorts of IBD patients, one pediatric and one adult. Um, and they found differences in the gene expression and methylation pro, uh, profiles, which were associated with age and with sex and also whether the individuals had disease or not. But they were unable to validate this previously described gene signature with disease prognosis. And this finding has led to a, a pretty frosty series of um, letters in the journal between the authors of the 2011 paper and the authors of this one. Um, I think that the key take home is that, I mean, clearly this is disappointing for clinicians and for patients who'd hoped that this might be a great biomarker for prognosis in IBD and, and could be something really useful in the clinic. But I think it also offers a sort of salutary lesson about biomarker development and validation. Um, and that's discussed quite nicely in the accompanying editorial. So that's number one, and I think I'm way over time already. Um, so we'll go on for the second. Um, this one is about microscopic colitis, something a bit different, specifically 
about the risks of cancer associated with it. This was published in JCC a couple uh, a few weeks ago um, uh, by David Bergman and uh, Jonas Ludvigsen from the Karolinska Institute. Um, and they've used a Swedish pathology register, which is then linked to patient data, to compare a, a huge cohort, 11,000 patients with microscopic colitis with 50,000 unaffected comparator subjects over a 25-year period. And they've got quite decent follow-up for these patients, uh, uh, just under seven years on average. And once they've adjusted for a variety of other variables, microscopic colitis was associated with a small increased risk of cancer with a hazard ratio of 1.08. But I think the interesting devil's in the detail here. So first, that increased risk was almost entirely confined to the first year of di after diagnosis, which suggests that this association is due to an association with either microscopic colitis with some malignancies or a surveillance bias where patients who are being investigated for microscopic colitis and uh, an occult cancer is diagnosed in parallel. Second, microscopic colitis was associated with an increased risk of lung cancer and lymphoma, and surprisingly to me, a decreased risk of colorectal cancer, which suggests that the um, that mucosal inflammation in microscopic colitis does not lead to colorectal cancer, uh, and indeed, you know, the numbers suggest that it may even be protective. Um, so they're very different from IBD and IBD-related malignancies. On a practical level, I think it will prompt me to think about the possibility of synchronous non-GI malignancy at the time of diagnosis. But at the same time, I think I will be less worried about, um, about the, uh, any kind of colorectal cancer risk from ongoing inflammation in microscopic colitis. And the third one is hopefully a quick one. Uh, this is a paper um, about real-world outcomes of vedolizumab treatment in IBD which is from Marcus Neurath and Sebastian Zundler, uh, who are based in Erlangen in Germany. So this is a single cohort of 181 patients treated with VEDO at a single specialist center, um, and really just encouraging results that, that about a third of patients achieved clinical remission after four months of treatment, and those benefits were maintained for the best part of three years of follow-up. Um, and this is really reassuring because this cohort of patients um, looks very much like those that get treated in, in kind of in real life rather than in, in clinical trials. So um, the patients had been uh, had had a diagnosis of, of IBD for many years, so eight years or 13 years uh, for UC and Crohn's respectively, and almost all of them had received at least one anti-TNF before, had required courses of steroids. So in a kind of a real world patient setting, you know, Vido shows, you know, really solid results um, for, for patients with IBD. Nice, nice three. I liked those. They were all very, very good. Um, I'll try and rush through my two. So um, they're both hepatology papers. Uh, so the first is another hepatitis B paper um, asking whether we should treat patients who have a minimal, minimally raised ALT in a high um, hep B viral load. And this is these are the results from the TORCH B trial um, which is a really important multicentered randomized trial um, from Prof. Zhao Tao Lin in Taiwan. And that's been published within the last couple of weeks uh, in the Lancet Infectious Diseases. 
so the background to this, um, so so easel guidelines currently recommend treatment for people who have chronic hep B with raised viral load and um, an ALT that is above the upper limit of normal. But the American guidelines and the Asian Pacific guidelines recommend treatment only when hep B DNA is raised um, and the ALT is two times um, above the upper limit of normal. So there's this kind of question about uh, whether people uh, with an ALT of between one and two times the upper limit of normal should be treated or not, whether it actually benefits them in terms of hep B um, outcomes down the line. So in this trial, individuals are randomised um, to having tenofovir once a day or placebo for three years. And the, um, the cohort of patients had chronic hep B with a raised HBB DNA and uh, a raised ALT of between one and two times the upper limit of normal. So the primary outcomes were interesting um, for this trial because they were actually histological. So the co-primary outcomes were a change in liver necroinflammation by, measured by the nodal score, which uh, Fitz thought was a delicious Austrian snack. Um, <laughs> but that's that's knurdel, apparently. Uh, but but in this context, it's actually um, a score of uh, of necroinflammation in the liver, um, or a change in the fibrosis grade um, via the ischemic score on paired liver biopsy. And the important finding from this trial really is that they found that tenofovir reduced the risk of fibrosis prog progression. It didn't um, change uh, necroinflammation, but overall, this supports its use in those with a minimally raised ALT and a raised hep B DNA. Um, so this is a great trial, and I was really glad to see that out. There's still obviously lots of questions about other populations of uh, people with chronic hep B. For example, um, those who have raised uh, hep B DNA viral load but a normal ALT, and whether um, treatment with nukes could actually reduce their risk of fibrosis and therefore cirrhosis and HCC long term. And finally, um, final paper um, is uh, a paper looking at uh, budesonide treatment in uh, primary biliary cholangitis. So um, this was recently published in the Journal of Hepatology led by Gideon Hirschfeld and this trial involved 62 individuals with PBC across um, multiple centres in North America and Europe. Um, who had a raised ALP, so um, above 1.5 times the upper limit of normal, um, and either inflammation or fibrosis on liver biopsy, um, despite being treated with ursodoxicolic um, acid uh, for at least six months. So participants um, remained on urso, but were randomised to receive 9 milligrams a day of budesonide or placebo for 36 months, so quite high dose budesonide for quite a long time. Um, and the primary outcome, again, was histological. So improvement in um, inflammation and no progression of fibrosis and liver biopsy was the primary outcome. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't achieved. Um, although um, some of the secondary outcomes, so biochemical improvement, uh, a reduction in ALP and a normalization of bilirubin was um, significantly higher in the budesonide group compared to the placebo group. Now, this trial I thought was really interesting, partly because of the results and partly because um, I just think it exposes um, 
some of the real difficulties in conducting trials in rare diseases like PBC. Um, and actually, the trial in the end was underpowered for its primary outcome, firstly. So really, in a way, the jury's still out as to whether budesonide could be helpful. And um, secondly, they actually had to uh, um, open up uh, their inclusion criteria um, halfway through the trial because um, the inclusion criteria at the beginning was so strict that they weren't able to recruit enough patients. Um, so it's food for thought, and I think the jury's still out, um, but it really highlights the need and the difficulties of conducting trials in these uh, kind of rare diseases. So, shall we, um, shall we recap what we've learned? Just a quick bullet point of each of the, the papers that we've, uh, uh, that we, that we've presented. So, um, so, the first paper that I talked about, so the COVID-19 pandemic has had a major impact on colorectal cancer pathways in the UK, with huge reductions in referrals and colonoscopy procedures in the first wave, and that led to a 22% reduction in diagnose, diagnoses corresponding to about three and a half thousand fewer patients diagnosed with colorectal cancer than we would have expected. Acute or chronic liver failure is associated with changes in gene expression in immune cell populations, particularly um, in immunometabolism, which might help us to develop new biomarkers and potentially new treatments in the future. And then on to the five in five, um, talking about biomarkers, Disappointingly, a previously reported gene expression biomarker of, of, uh, of IBD progression could not be validated in two further cohorts by an independent group. And I think it highlights that we need to be cautious, and I would argue probably pretty sceptical, about novel transcriptional biomarkers for disease and prognosis uh, until we've seen multiple independent validation studies. Uh, then we have the paper on microscopic colitis, which is associated with a small overall risk of cancer, which mainly seems to be lung cancer and lymphoma at the time of diagnosis. But interestingly, a lower risk of colorectal cancer over time. And finally, I, I presented a, uh, the paper about some real world, real world data about vedolizumab use um, in, in inflammatory bowel disease, which shows decent proportions in terms of clinical remission, uh, even in patients who've um, who are several years post-diagnosis, have had previous anti-TNF uh, agents and required steroids. And my final two, um, treatment of patients with minimally raised ALT and high viral load in chronic hep hepatitis B with tenofovir reduces the risk of fibrosis progression. Uh, treatment of individuals with PBC resistant to ERSO, adding budesonide does not improve liver histology. Fantastic. I think we've got to the end of our first episode of GI Instinct, your GI research update. Um, we're going to put all of the details of the papers that we've discussed in the show notes. Please let us know what you think of the format, any ideas you've got, any cool papers you've seen that you think we should be talking about. We would love to hear from you. Please leave us a review. Get in touch on Twitter at GI Update or drop us an email at gut instincts podcast all at one word at gmail.com thank you very much for listening and goodbye